This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So many unfamiliar and familiar faces today. How many people are here for the first time? Anyone? Welcome. Anyone else over there? (laughs) I see a hand. Welcome to everyone, whether it's your first time, your second time, your umpteenth time. (laughs) Today is a very special day. Today is a day I think uh, you probably have already heard if you were here for the announcements. Um, This afternoon we'll be holding a ceremony It's a very auspicious ceremony. It's a ceremony that will bring tears to my eyes, most likely, as well as many, many others who have gone through the ceremony. Um, It's an initiation ceremony. It's called the Bodhisattva Initiation Ceremony. It's what we call it in our school of Zen. And in this ceremony, we have uh, three, I guess we can call them ordinees, (laughs) Preceptees, <laughs> baby bodhisattvas about to be born. Uh, three of our Sangha members have, through their own and the entire universe's will, they have decided to receive the precepts in a formal public ceremony, which all of you are invited to. Has anyone here never seen a precept ceremony before? couple of you. It's such a, you know, sometimes I hear people say to me, why don't you ever talk about um, ethics or morality in Zen? Like, why is it about, it's about meditation and emptiness and formlessness and becoming enlightened. Does anybody have that feeling that it's kind of we skew things? No, not at all. (laughs) 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 Same Dave, like, no, no. How many of you, when you hear the word ethics or maybe morality, precepts, um, feel joyful? A couple, a couple of people. How many of you feel kind of dread? <laughs> a couple. <laughs> what is that? How many of you feel sometimes one and sometimes the other? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, me too. Me too. And so in terms of like kind of unpacking these, these human emotions that come up around things like ethics, where do, we le- where do we get our ethics from? Well, okay, where do we get our morality from? And then where do we get our ethics from? And then out of that, what, what's a precept? So I think of morality as being kind of our individual sense of good and bad, right and wrong, right? And ethics goes a little bit further into like coming up with kind of core, maybe even universal um, statements about the nature of ethics. Right? Something a little bit more than just like, oh, it's what I think. Right? And then precepts, kind of, what does precepts do? The taking of precepts, the receiving of precepts do. So for those of you who said that there was some dread and you hear the, you know, hear, oh, this is going to be a talk about ethics. Oh, another talk about ethics. You know, it's like a little bit of dread there. What's being touched on there? 
No fun. Yeah, I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> now I'm being restricted. Yes, Pat? Uh, fear of judgment. Yeah. Fear of judgment. Yeah, you too? Uh, Mary? Fear of not being able to do it. Ah, fear of failure. Not being able to uh, live up to it. Is there chafing under the restriction of, of uh, traditions that you don't necessarily understand mm. or have yet internalized? Right, right. So it's like, am I going to be doing the right thing? Am I going to be viewed in a positive way? Right? We all want to be viewed in a positive way. No matter who we are, we want to be viewed in a positive way. Right? Um, certain kinds of expectations of ethical behavior can be used to oppress. Right, yeah. How many of you have felt that you've been oppressed by standards of behavior that have been imposed? Yeah, it's pretty universal. Meredith? Politics. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that we'll get back to, well, I don't know how much we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that a little bit in terms of this question of, like, how do we decide? And how do we decide what's right and wrong when we have a choice? Yeah. Crystal. I immediately have resistance come up, even if it's something I believe in and want. Ah, yeah. Don't tell me what to do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Get some nods here. Okay, for those of you who said that joyousness comes up when you hear about ethics or morality, what's the what's that about? What's being touched on there? Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, people's sincerity. Right, sincerity. Hmm? And I think um, people treating each other well. Yeah, that's something to be joyous about. We could use a little bit more of people treating each other well, right? <laughs> yes, Eric. Uh, the positive side. Right. Yeah, looking at the the beneficence behind the restriction. Like the restriction isn't just there to restrict us, right? It's there to lead us to something bigger than ourselves, maybe bigger than our self-centered uh, ego. Right? So there can be joy in feeling like, oh yeah, we can shed, you know, the restrictions of self, right? A little bit, and think of all beings. Right? Anyone else? Ah, yes, a hand. (laughs) (laughs) Jacob. Hey. I couldn't recognize you. What came to mind for me, what came up for me was the idea of with joy, is the idea that that it might arise naturally and organically, uh, that precepts might in a certain sense arise, Mm. uh, a sense of compassion and connectedness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, So it's not necessarily like a stern thing to do or not do, it just might just kind of work in tandem. Yes. Another hand. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I think universal law. That's what I think. I think universal law and it's the golden rule is the higher power. The higher power. Like golden rule. Okay, well, yeah, we'll talk about golden rule in a, in a moment as well. So universal law. And so in terms of the joyousness, does that feeling of a universal law bring joy? Yeah. I I know that if I walk the higher path, um, I know that I'm shedding bad karma and and that I'm I'm burning it up. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so when you're making a decision, that can be that can come into play. Like, what are you what are you doing the thing that you're either doing or not doing? (laughs) What are you doing it for? What's behind it? What's the motivation? 
What's the intention behind what you do? And as all of you should probably know, even those of you who are here for the first time, Buddhism is about being aware of your intention, which means going beyond just the superficial, right? It's like going deeper, which we access in a very, very practical way, right? It's very practical, but it's also magical. We access our deepest intuitions. How? Sitting. Sitting. Do you all believe that? that you can access your deepest intention by sitting? Just sitting still. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes your brain has other ideas for the period of zazen. <laughs> But kind of like, you know, burning through karma in the same way you burn through all the, the monkey mind throws things at us, right, when we sit down. But if we give it enough time, just like the pool of muddy water will eventually settle, right? You give it enough time, you carefully observe it, you let it do what it does, and it'll settle. And then emerging out of that clarity, maybe just maybe, the answer to the question of why do you do what you do comes out of a feeling of clarity and stillness out of which, you know, joyous things can arise, right? Compassion, generosity, loving kindness, respect, honor, honoring our life and the lives of not just other people but other beings, right? Sentient and insentient even. And how do we, when we tap, when we come from that place, joy, I think, naturally arises, right? And so the flip side, when we feel the rub of like, ah, this is, you know, when we feel that, that's like a, you know, we can use that as a mindfulness spell of like, what's lacking? What do we have that we're holding on to that's preventing that natural stillness, that natural joy from arising, right? And so it's not like, oh, like, oh, I should be, you know, you know, happy when people talk about precepts. There's something wrong with me. You know, it's not like that, right? That's, that's a rabbit hole, <laughs> right? But we might find ourselves there sometimes. And that's the, you know, a clear sign that's like, well, maybe we should just take a step back and take a look with compassion, with wisdom, with kindness, so um, this ceremony that we're doing today, it's interesting. Sometimes we call it a jukai ceremony, which means giving and receiving the precepts. And we also call it an ordination, zaikei tokudo, which is in contrast to a shuke tokudo. Shuke meaning leaving home, and zaikei meaning staying home, being in the world. Right? An ordination of being, how can I be in the world? Right. Whereas a shuke tokudo, a priest ordination, is how can I leave the comfort of what I think of as being home? These paths are a little bit different. If you take one path, it doesn't mean you can't take the other path. Right? But they're paths. These are paths that have signposts on them. They have clear markers sometimes. And sometimes the path is really you know muddy and, and weedy and you can't really thicket it's a thicket and you have to kind of find your way you know where is the path where is the way what is the way right and to open ourselves to that question is something that we do as an ordinary day-to-day activity all the time 
right? Should I get that extra scoop of ice cream? Should I buy the, the car that I like better but gets worse gas mileage? Should I buy a car at all? Right? These are these questions, everyday questions that if you come to them with a feeling from, if you come to those questions from a feeling of, I don't want to think about it, maybe there's something there, like something about obligation, like what you should do, there's judgment, there's a, all kinds of fear and distress that can come up with asking those questions. But if you come to those questions from a place of stillness, of wholeness, then they can be joyful inquiries that you can make. What would be the best thing? What do I really want? You know, how many times does anyone just come up to you and ask you, what do you really want? Does that make you feel joyous? <laughs> so think of yourselves as giving yourself that gift. What, what's really true for me? Right? To tap into that joy that comes from uh, taking up uh, an ethical life, a good life. You can think of it as just, what is a good life? Now, unfortunately, many of us human beings, we all, actually, all of us, I to say, all, <laughs> all of our, us human beings often, maybe more often than not, come from a particular perspective. What's that perspective? That, that gets in the way, actually, of living... Uh, Being selfish. Self, right? Ego. Ego, exactly. So we normally, you know, if left to our own devices... <laughs> You know, we can become very self-absorbed. We can live from the perspective of what's good for me. And then maybe, you know, you let other people in because what happens to them will affect you. <laughs> and you might end up in some kind of psychological hedonism where everything, no matter what you do, you think, well, it's actually for my best interest. Like, if other people suffer, that's going to make me feel bad, so I don't want them to suffer. Right. You can play around with that, but that's just a philosophical name game, I think. So going backwards, within Buddhism, we have fundamentally, in I think, yeah, in all of Buddhism, there's fundamentally three trainings that we undertake. And these trainings are not taken, I mean, you could think of them as maybe starting off, taking them in order, there's a certain order to them. But once they start going, it's like a wheel, right? You start going and it's got a momentum of its own. Which reminds me, I've got a... A cat. I've got a I've got a stationary bike right now that uh, I'm using for my my knee recovery, and it's one of these recumbents. So it's got this you know the pedals go, and I've got this cat who's never seen this before and is like super curious. What is this? And he keeps getting clocked. <laughs> and I you know I'm trying to be careful, but I'm not stopping entirely. I'm just kind of like slowing. Down. Is he gonna try and jump at the pedal again? Oh, sorry, buddy. <laughs> he'll he'll learn right. <laughs> You know, it's not that I'm not compassionate, but you know, but, but it's like this wheel that keeps going, right? And and both the karmic wheel, where we do something, uh, we live for the benefit of me, right? That plants a seed, that then fruits into further actions that are about me, right? How many of you have tried living just for yourself? <laughs> I'd say probably all of us, right? Is it satisfying? Does it bring happiness and joy and contentment? A little while, maybe, yeah, right. Until something, something happens, and it's like, wait a minute, I'm not in alignment with actually tr my my own truth. Something will reveal itself, and it's uh, it's it's kind of empty, it's like empty calories or something, right? 
feels filling, but it actually doesn't nourish us, right? So these three trainings in Buddhism are also like this wheel that has momentum, that the seeds that get planted start to, if you nourish those seeds and, and water them, they will start to you know, grow and sprout. And those three trainings are the first one, sila, precepts. Well, actually, sila, you know, in Buddhism, there isn't really a term for ethics or morality <laughs> in, 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 in the uh, early Buddhist teachings. Sila, what it means, I mean, so we, you know, people, English translators translate it as ethics or morality, right? precepts. But really, it means virtuous behavior or wholesome behavior, making oneself whole, right? not cutting off parts of ourselves. How do you know when you're cutting something off of yourself? It hurts. What? It hurts. <laughs> yeah, you feel it. You feel a lack of wholeness, right? And when you feel whole, joy can naturally arise, right? When you feel whole, ah, satiation, right? When you when you eat food and you feel like you've had enough, right? There's a feeling in the body of like, oh yeah, I've had enough. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> The first of these three trainings is the training of sila. It's taking up the precepts, taking up the question, what is uh, wholesome? What's wholesome behavior? What leads to wholeness in, you know, you can start with yourself in my life, in the others that are around me, in all beings, right? That's the first training. And that is one of the main components, right? That's the main component of today's bodhisattva initiation is the receiving of specific precepts. The second training is the training of samadhi, right? Concentration. This is the stillness. When the pool becomes clear all the way to the bottom, it only happens when there's stillness. So when we sit in meditation, we're cultivating that sense of stillness. We're letting things come and go. We're not attaching to them. We're not kicking up more dust. Right? Things may arise, a fish swims by, and there's dust, you know, flurries upwards from the, from the bottom. But then, you know, things settle again, right? Things are constantly settling. If you just leave them alone, <laughs> things are settling. So we do that. We just leave it alone when we sit. And then the third of the trainings is that of prajna, or wisdom. Now, wisdom meaning not some kind of uh, intelligence, necessarily, but a deep knowing of reality, of what is, what's true. Right? It is oftentimes not something that you can say in words. So if you find that you can say it in words, you know, sit, sit a longer, <laughs> sit a little bit longer, and, um, you know, often, but we do, we talk about it, we have to, because right? that's what we have, those are the tools we have. So these three trainings, sila, samadhi, and prajna, they also fold in on oneself. So how can you actually do sila without samadhi or without wisdom? You can, right? You stumble along. But when they start to really go, they feed upon one another. They feed each other, right? Like a, like a wheel that's being turned. And these three trainings, what's the point of these three trainings? What's the whole point of that? Non-duality, ending of suffering. Continuous practice. 
Continuous practice. Enlightenment. Enlightenment. <laughs> yes. yes. Basically waking up, right? Waking up to reality, which brings the end of suffering. <laughs> and actually freedom. Liberation. Okay. Liberation. Now, liberation in the sense of not the liberation that comes with like, well, I get to do what I want, right? Sometimes being able to get to do what you want, you, you exhaust that pretty quickly and then you're like, okay, now I'm bored. <laughs> or, you know, this isn't bringing happiness. This isn't bringing a feeling of fullness, wholeness, right? Because what we want, like where does the want come from? What part of ourselves is the want coming from? Right? Where is the abiding and allowing and allowing things as they are? So this freedom, nibbana, nirvana, right, is freedom. It's liberation from our limited ways. So for those of you who are new or fairly new to the Zen Center, oftentimes people come to a Zen Center because they are curious about this either as a philosophy, a way of life, uh, a practice, right? Often because of suffering. Not everyone comes from, from uh, out of suffering, but many, many times people come to a Zen center or to a Buddhist temple because they're suffering and they know it and they don't want to continue to suffer, right? So you want to try something new, something that's going to get me out of my you know, my fixed views, my rigid, my rigid ways, the stuckness maybe. So coming out of stuckness, what better thing to do to reset, refresh, than to just sit down and see what's happening in this body and mind. Right? So oftentimes that aspiration of like, I just want to find out more. I'm curious. Right? But then, of course, we can't help it. We bring all our karma with us wherever we go. And so, so for some people coming into a Zen temple, it's like as soon as something starts to happen that's like, you know, touches on a past event that made us feel uncomfortable, that comes right up and we get to see it, right? And for many of us, it's really overwhelming and we just run out the door. <laughs> it's like, ah, this is reminding me of my Catholic upbringing or whatever it is, right? And they run out the door. Like, I don't want any of that. This is all ritualistic or this is a cult or, you know, all kinds of things can, ha and can happen. And that's great. Please run out the door if you feel like you need to run out the door. And then maybe come back when you feel like you can come back. You wouldn't be the first. <laughs> but this, this suffering that, you know, the root cause of this suffering that we want liberation from, what's the root cause of this suffering? We, we've mentioned it already. Attachment. Attachment. Separation. Separation from what is? Other humans. Other humans, yeah, gosh, other humans <laughs> getting into their politics. Right. Separation, right, what is the, the cause of our suffering is? Separation, separate self. Separate self, right, it's actually selfing. So Charlotte Jokobeck has this great, uh, it's called a practice principle that she, she talks about, called the dream of self. I'm going to read it. Caught in a dream of self only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. 
being just this moment, compassion's way. I'll read it again. Caught in a dream of self. Why is it a dream? It's not real. Because it's not real. Yeah. How do we know it's not real? Well, it's hard to know that. <laughs> 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 Sorry, just through wisdom, right? Through study. Right? Because when we act and live according to just the, you know, what I want, we suffer more. <laughs> right? So how can that be the, the path? The path of self is not the path to awakening. So, but we get caught. All of us get caught in this dream of self. Holding to self-centered thoughts. Anytime you feel that, that feeling of like, that you're right, <laughs> like even if you are <laughs> if you have that feeling of like well I'm right like really notice that in your body right this is this you know holding to self-centered thoughts right you almost feel the separation happening the separating from the moment separating from this other person who like who do they think I am right <laughs> We feel the separation in that moment when we have that feeling of, well, well I didn't do that. You know. Well, they shouldn't do this. So it's all very tricky. But it's, it's all over the place. So we have lots and lots of opportunities to come into contact with it. And then she turns to each moment just as it is. So when you feel that separation, oftentimes when we feel that, that the pain, what do we, we try and push it away? Right? We're like, oh, my, you know, I'm not supposed to do that because now I'm going to suffer. Right? And so it just piles on another sort of obligation or another you should do this. Right? So this line, each moment, just as it, life as it is. It's like, oh, this moment happens to have that feeling of separation. Oh, look, there's me again. Right? How do we welcome each moment even the moments that we don't really, we really don't want to welcome. How do we still give some space? Even if you just give it space for one breath. It's like you're opening the door a little bit to the discomfort. This is going against our usual self-centeredness. Right? Usually, when something happens, somebody does us wrong, right? We feel very justified and vindicated even in telling that person off or talking about them behind their back or just, you know, uh, railing against them inside our own minds, right? We feel this vindication. We might even know that it's not helpful, but we still do it. So in that moment when we recognize it, how do we just let it be what it is? That's what she's bringing up in this line. And then being just this moment, who am I? Are you your thoughts, your body, sensations, your political ideology? Are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you non-binary? Black? White? Asian? Mixed? These are all, you know, being just this moment. You can bring in any kind of label or identity that you want. That's fine. 
But being just this moment is actually a lot bigger than any word that you can come up with that will describe you, any box that you think you want to be put into or want to be taken out of. Right? Being just this moment includes all of it. This is compassion's way. Compassion's way, meaning being willing to stand with and uh, feel all the feels. So this, these three trainings that lead us to Nibbana, freedom, the root cause of the suffering being self, but more, I'm going to unpack it a little bit further, the root cause being what aspects of selfing? Desire. Desire, that's one of them. Lust. Lust is another like desire. Aversion. Aversion. Aversion, right? We get to the opposite there. And? Separation. Separation. Or? Delusion. 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 Exactly. Hey. <laughs> so, greed, lust, desire, aversion, hatred, pushing away, I don't want to, no I won't, and then separation or delusion. Delusion is a little tricky because it's hard to know when we're deluded. I mean, we're always deluded, but it's hard to know what kind of delusion we're you know, manifesting in any particular moment. Right? But the feeling of separation, I like that a lot, Eric. The feeling of separation. Right? Delusion oftentimes refers to the, del- the specific delusion, ignorance, the fundamental ignorance that we are not completely, absolutely interconnected with all things that we somehow exist separately. Very hard to see that sometimes. Sometimes we feel very separate. We feel very alone. Reminds me of Suzuki Roshi's waterfall uh, example of being the little droplet that's in the river. And you're like, oh, I'm just one of the river, part of the river. And then the waterfall you know, comes and the droplet's all by itself. And thinks it's alone. Right? But it's in the same trajectory. It's going the same place. And then whoosh, back to oneness, right? In terms of how we relate to these, these, uh, these the ethical principles or morality, the 16 bodhisattva precepts um, is one way, a very fundamental to the Zen school, a fundamental way of relating to questions about how to live a good life, how to live a whole life, how to also be enlightened. Because actually, the virtuous life and the enlightened life are one and the same. So in trying to ask that question, like how do, how do we normally go about making ethical decisions, there's lots of different ways right, that we go about it. One, one possible way is the golden rule. Right? The golden rule is a great one. Or even, you know, going a little bit further. So everyone familiar with the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, right? Immanuel Kant came up with an idea of the categorical imperative, which is very, it's like another kind of form of the golden rule, right? Which is don't do anything that you wouldn't allow everybody to do. (laughs) If you're not okay with some people doing this thing, then you don't do it. Another, uh, like a principle, Right? These are principles that one may live, may live by. You see these principles in our precepts. Don't kill. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't misuse sexuality. 
Don't harbor ill will. Don't praise self at the expense of others. Don't be avaricious. And don't uh, disparage, don't be disparaging of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Precepts. Right? These are some of the grave precepts. So these are principles that we could act by. Right? And we may, I mean, with Kant, where did Kant come up with this categorical imperative? How, where did it come from for him? Anyone know? Reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's reason. Right? And I think the golden rule is a similar one. It comes from reason. So it's principle. these are principles that we may live by. Right? And our ethics may be grounded, or our individual morality may be grounded in these principles. Right? You may have learned principles as part of your upbringing. You just don't do that thing. Just don't do it. Right? That's maybe one motivation for why we do the things that we do. Another is, I'm getting into my like, dragging out my, my former philosophy in life now, is like uh, looking at the consequences, right? Why don't I do this thing that I want to do? Because I don't like the consequences. If I eat that second, you know, scoop of ice cream, then I'm going to feel sick or I'm going to regret it because I'm on a diet or whatever, right? So we look at the consequences. Why don't I do this thing? Because it'll hurt a lot of people. Why don't I steal this or... Uh, you know, why wouldn't I lie about this thing or steal this thing or kill this thing because the consequences, I wouldn't be able to, I don't like the consequences, right? In that kind of consequential looking at the consequences, it's not really about the principle of the thing, it's about what the effects are, right? So if you live according to principle, you may not be concerned about the consequences, right? No, you just don't kill. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, it's going to have good consequences or bad consequences. You just don't do that. Right. Uh, Diane uh, Rosetto come, has this example, I don't know where she, she got it from, but this is an example of, um, you know, you're out walking in the forest and you see a rabbit, you know, run across the path. And, and then you see a hunter come, you know, close after, and the hunter comes up and is like, did you see the rabbit? Which way did the rabbit go? And you're like, oh no, no, I don't want to kill, I don't want this hunter to kill this rabbit. So you, you know, what do you do? Do you say the truth? Do you lie? If you lie, then it might, you know, you might lead to the death of this rabbit. So what do you do in that case? Do you, which principle do you go by? Do you go by the pr- a principle or do you go by the consequences of what you do? Anyone? Go by the direction, not the path. Sorry? Go by the directive? Well, like everything's the game of life, right? The hunter needs to eat. Yeah. Uh. You just basically point the direction, let him choose his own path. That's his karma. Yeah, so you, there you go. You're just like, I'm not going to play this game. You find the rabbit. I saw it, but I'm not telling you because it's your karma. You can do that. That's a great, that's a great way out of it. <laughs> the moral connection. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, well, okay, like, let's, let's go back to, like, Nazi Germany. Right, you can lie to save the rabbit's life. Right, you can lie to save the rabbit's life. So in her example, she does bring it a little bit further. She says, okay, so let's say that's what you decide to do. You're like, well, you know, I don't have to, you know, I'm just going to lie. Because it's actually breaking the precept of, maybe you, maybe you have a principle behind that that says not killing is more important than not lying. Right, you have this little cost-benefit analysis that you do in your head. Right, how much, you know... The harm are you going to cause? Well, this, you know, you're going to, something's going to lead to death. And this is just going to, you know, what's the lie going to do, right? We have this idea, this white lie, right? 
So in her example, she says, okay, so let's say you've come to your decision about what you're going to do in this situation, and now let's say you see three starving young children following the hunter saying, Daddy, feed me, I'm hungry. <laughs> what do you do now? Change. You may change, right? Because new information. Right? So whether you go by principle, by utilitarian means, how, what else do we use as our basis of what we do, what we do? Got data collection. Gather data. <laughs> data. <laughs> well, data collection can help all of our, yes, yes, absolutely. We can help us make decisions because we have to see a fuller picture, right? Like if we didn't know about the three starving children, then, you know, it's, yeah, it's good to know about them in our, in our example. I use my gut. What? Gut. Ah, yes, gut. <laughs> gut. You know it. You just know what you feel, right? And um, that's definitely a way that we make decisions, right? Oftentimes, that will ultimately be what we do, right? We might have the principle. We might have the, oh, well, but the consequences. Okay, then you settle into the, what's my gut say, right? Our intuition, maybe, right? Now... Unpacking that a little bit, is that reliable? Not always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, but the hunter's kind of cute, too. <laughs> yeah, so when... children can always be at home and you don't know that they're there or not. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. What does right effort do? Yeah, so right effort. Jacob, what is the effort that you're talking about? The effort to see clearly? The, I guess the, the, it's something you develop, like a sense of, like uh, mm. that you're trusting that you're, when you feel that you're making the right effort, that's a certain feeling, and you have to be open to it, but it's kind of scary because you don't really know, in a sense. Right. Yeah, you don't really know, but you have to make a decision. So you go, you gather your facts, the factual data, and then you feel your gut. Maybe you sit a period of zazen before you make a decision. <laughs> and then you ignore all of that in favor of inculcated social norms. And values. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, uh, yeah, the inculcated social norms and values definitely comes into it. What political party you're at, you're in, those sorts of things. Meredith, yes. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But you still have to make it. Yeah. The the effort to minimize harm. Right. The effort to minimize harm. Right. That that goes into the consequence. Looking at the consequences. Right. You try to assess what's the what's the harm that is possible. And of course, you don't know. But we, you know, we have brains and we can use them to like figure out. Well, maybe this. We do that cost benefit analysis sometimes, often. Right. There's also what's known as virtue ethics. So thinking back to Aristotle, why do we do the things that we do? What, what is, like thinking about one's kind of uh, character. So in virtue ethics, it's like, well, what principle, it's not print, by principle, it's not like this is a rule that we're going to follow, right? Do not kill. But in virtue ethics, it's like, what is the characteristic or the personality attribute of integrity, right? What's the thing to do that has the most integrity, that has the most wholeness, 
right? That's kind of similar to gut. You know, it's a little bit similar, but it's a little bit different. It's more, in some ways, more uh, refined or thought about than gut. The problem with gut is that, you know, when I want that second ice cream scoop, I may not be in the right frame of mind. Like, the, I'm not, if I'm not thinking about consequences or... Well, the ice cream isn't a very good example because it's <laughs> such a minor one. Dating. What? Dating with the wrong intentions. Dating. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a whole <laughs> realm of practice right there, right? Our sexual energy. Oh, it just felt right. <laughs> like, do you trust yourself when you're, like, high on hormones? <laughs> maybe, maybe you shouldn't, right? Like, what feels right may not be the best thing in this circumstance, right? So always t- being able to take a, you know, take a step back is great when you have the time and the wherewithal to do so. We don't always have it, right? And we can't always make the right decision. So the purpose of all of these questions is not to come up with the right answer, as anyone who studied precepts with me in the precept group knows. Like, a lot of it is unpacking, like, well, we try to look for the right answer. What's our best guess? Right? How do we do the thing that is going to, uh, that we can live with? Right? How do we do the thing that we are comfortable living with? Now, if you don't really think about these things so much very often and you're not very self-aware about your own habit, energy, and patterns of behavior, then maybe living by your gut may not be so, they may end up with a big, you know, swath of destruction behind you (laughs) because you're just not, you're not aware. But if you're clear and still and you're really connected to your past conditioning, the situation around you, then maybe if you're like, say if you're Buddha, does Buddha think about like, oh, wait a minute, no, it's on the list, do not kill. (laughs) No, and oftentimes when we talk about the Bodhisattva precepts, we talk about them not as rules, right, but in the format of a disciple of Buddha does not do this, a disciple of Buddha does not do that, right? These are manifestations, the precepts are manifestations of an enlightened mind that from a from enlightenment, from pure freedom, of from self, from greed, hate, and delusion, from that place, breaking the precepts is really not even possible. It's just not in you. So maybe as a Buddha coming from your gut and relying, really relying on your gut, that's, perf- that's perfection, right? But until we get there, I mean, you know, all of us, all of us use all of, all of these different ways when we're making decisions, right? We go, maybe we start with principle, like, well, the principle is don't do this thing. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, when I gather more information, it means that it's going to be more suffering, like the trolley car is going to hit 30 people instead of just this one, I should do that, you know, right? We start making these calculations when we have more information, right? So we jump from, okay, the principle to like, well, we're going to take in this other information, right, to do a, you know, uh, a benefit, a cost-benefit analysis, right? But then there's just like, you have to live with your own actions. What does your character say, right? So you might turn to virtue or care ethics, right? This feeling, rather than thinking of, you know, it's like, do you come from a perspective of justice or do you come from a perspective of care and compassion? Can you marry the two of them together? Yeah. 
sometimes. <laughs> sometimes if you fall too much on one side or the other, you do the, the one that you're miss, you know, you do one of them disservice. Right? So all of this navigation of what, how do I live a good life? How do I lead, lead a whole life, whole and true to my deepest intention? Right? This is the joyousness of ethics, of taking precepts. And when we do this in uh, a tradition like this one, you know, the precepts, as I said before, in, even in, within Buddhism, the precepts are one of many different ways that we look at things like wholesome and unwholesome behavior. Earliest, the earliest teaching in Buddhism, the earliest, the first teaching, was the teaching on the Eightfold Path, right? which talks about what is right action, what is right effort, right intention, right livelihood. Right? How do I, and this is laid out as if you want to wake up to the true nature of your own suffering, follow this path. Don't take my word for it. Try it out. Right? That was what was on offer. Right? The Eightfold Path is inherently laden with these questions of what is, uh, leads to a good life. Right? And the good life and the enlightened life, they're right next to each other. Another form in Buddhism is the paramitas, the perfections. Right? These are other, another way of talking about these. This, these are kind of more like talking about virtuous characteristics, right? Generosity, right? Energy, mindfulness, concentration, right? all effort. All of these things are, are perfections, and we work on these perfections, right? And in Zen, which I'm not even going to really be able to get into so much, but it's like you're just fine just the way you are, right? Zen oftentimes can, in our practice, we can fall into something called Zen sickness, right? Does anyone know what Zen sickness is? Or where it comes from? Is it like perfectionism or something? No. Oh. If you don't have a state of flow and you don't want to be around anybody else, it disrupts your flow. That's maybe a symptom of it. Yeah. A belief in, in uh, your way. Yes. Overemphasis on the emptiness. Overemphasizing of em the emptiness, right? Mm -hmm. Trusting emptiness as opposed to the day-to-day -day practical impact of behavior and the feeling of a compassionate heart. Right, so Zen sickness can sometimes be, well, it's all empty, everything is all one man. You know, like it can be, it can be coming from that place of like the flow, maybe the flow, right? You're in this 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 state of like, well, it's all good, and then you end up not being very responsive to the actual suffering in the world or the thing that's right in front of you because you're in your own samadhi, right? So Zen sickness is definitely a thing. So oftentimes, if we come from what feels good to me, what's in my gut, that could lead to a certain kind of Zen sickness. If you're really awake and attuned, right, and resonant with the conditions of the world, suffering comes, right? It's not suffering, I mean, unpack the word suffering, but you feel it when others suffer. Even if you don't then suffer, suffer, 
in the same way, you feel it. And if you're really open and attuned, you'll feel it even more. If you're not open and attuned and you're in your own kind of cocoon of emptiness, you may not even notice it, right? Or you might notice it and be like, well, yeah. you can say things like, oh, that's your karma. Talking about other people's karma is almost never a good idea. <laughs> it almost always gets you into trouble, right? Talking about your own karma, unpacking your own karma. Now, depending on if you do that with, like, you know, the self-flagellation, like if you're prone to harming yourself, you know, stop it, <laughs> right? But, um, but in, the, in the sense of, you know, when we talk about wholesome factors, one, one wholesome factor that is, gets a really bad reputation is... You know, the word, and the words are clunky, right? But the word shame, right? We think of shame as not a good thing. We don't want to feel shame. Shame's a bad thing, right? But in the Buddhist, you know, uh, categorization of things, of mental states from the Abhidhamma, shame or remorse, maybe remorse is a better word, is a wholesome quality, right? It's only wholesome if you think you can do something different, right? And so if what you're, you know, the thing that you do led to suffering or led to pain yourself or others or all beings, right? To be able to reflect and say, you know, when I did that thing, a lot of people got hurt and it made me, that didn't feel so good. That's not how I want to live. That doesn't make me feel whole when I, you know, lead, you know, do things that cause destruction, right? So that's where remorse comes in. The feeling of like, you know, I sh- maybe I won't do that in the future. Why? Because I know I have a choice. I have a choice, right? It's not necessarily joyous, to feel remorse, right? But there's a hopefulness in remorse that's not there necessarily with some of the Western concepts of shame, right? Where you think of, like, I'm just an awful person, right? I'm a X, right? And put your, your negative attribute right there, and that's, like, that's not that we're ta- what we're talking about in terms of remorse. We're actually, with remorse, it's like, I'm a Buddha, and I forgot myself. I forgot that I was a Buddha for that moment and I did this thing that led to suffering. I'm going to not forget I'm a Buddha next time. I'm going to try really hard not to forget my uh, pure, calm, serene mind that's not obsessed with self. We can do that. Yeah. It's like uh, you have a reset button. Yeah. 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 Right. And and I think that zazen is a great reset, right? Because you get to like you know when we come into the zendo, it's like you know there's rules, there's a principle here, right? You bow to your cushion, you bow away from your cushion, you sit down, you don't move, <laughs> you do this for 35 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it is, right? You do it for the period of zazen. Of course, if you you know you can't do it, then you know life goes on. Right, people adapt to you, you know, shrieking and running out of zendo. Um, not that I recommend that, but. So the, right. my question is that it's, it's my understanding is the self-existent ego is the thing that's experiencing the shame. Yes. And so turning towards the shame is a way of unfreezing the shame. Ah. So, but the, you can't do that from just. The Say more about that. You can't do it. Where do you do it from? You do it from the larger self. And you look compassionately at your shame. Right. And then you can move from it to remorse. 
Right, right. So that the so, but it's really important to to stay with the shame. Yes. Right. So when you feel shame, it's not like, oh, that's a bad thing. Let me, you know, hide it under the rug or push it in the closet. It's actually, again, with all things that are uncomfortable. This is why this is why the when I asked the question in the beginning and people said dread, this is why it's hard. Practice is not necessarily easy and it's not, you know, bunnies and unicorns all the time. Right. It's it's, you know. What? That's right. Starving children. Right, right. But yes, how do we how do we uh, have the strength, really, to turn towards the things that we don't want to turn towards? What supports us in our endeavor to turn towards the discomfort? Vow. Vow. Vow is definitely definitely can help. Right. That can be coming from principle. Right? Because we don't like the consequences of what happens when we don't. Right? Sometimes, like, I, I have to say, I, I'm one of these people, you know, the, the ones where, like, I have to really, like, to learn something. I'm really stupid. <laughs> sometimes, in the sense, you know, like, not in a bad sense, but in the sense of, like, it takes me a lot sometimes to, like, oh, yeah, I get it now. There's this story in Zen, right, of the, the, the four kinds of horses the one that will run at the shadow of a whip, the one that will run at the sound of the whip being flicked, the one that needs to feel the whip on its skin, and then the fourth horse is the one that needs to feel it in their marrow. And sometimes I just have to say, I feel like, oh yeah, I really have to feel it before it's like, it'll actually make a difference, like I'll actually change my, my behavior. Again, this is just another example of like, looking at our karma, like what is our disposition? Right? So patience is one of the virtues that I will, really you know try to work on uh, need need to work on more than more than many right? we know we know our own like feelings because we've been able to turn to it right? and that takes a lot of courage so of all these different ways of bringing up this question of what is how do i decide what i need to do with my life with not you know in the sense of like where am i going to make my living that that can be part of it right that's the right li- the question of right livelihood but how do i act in this world not from a philosophical perspective, but from a day-to-day, how do I make a decision now? Like, oh, look, somebody dropped a $20 bill at the, you know, in, the, in the store. What do you do with it? It's, well, no one's, you know, no one's going to come back for it. I'm going to just you know, pocket it. Right? Or if I give it to the clerk, you know, it's just going to go to the store. Like, you know, all these things. You can see the churning of like, trying to justify. Like, and then you can go back to the principal Right? The principle could be, don't take what's not given. <laughs> oh, I'm just not going to take what's not given, so I'm just going to, you know, maybe I'll just leave it. Maybe I'll give it, you know, give it to the clerk. Maybe I'll ask the person who is standing there with her purse hanging open. <laughs> hey, is this yours? <laughs> right? So you can go by all of these different things, but all of them are gearing towards leading a awakened life of freedom from the... Uh, the the pain and suffering that come from living a life of karma, that from greed, hate, and delusion. Right? Now in Zen, when I you know I started by saying this ceremony that we're going to be holding today is a public ceremony. There's something about doing this by you know by vow, right? To take up a vow, but to take up a vow with others within the con- context of a community of practitioners, people who are also on the path. It's one thing that unites all of us right now. 
is that we're all interested in what is this path? What is this? We wouldn't be here. Maybe somebody dragged us here. <laughs> we're like, oh, I don't want to be here. But for the most part, I think everyone here is, you know, what is the path of life, of my life? So when we come together for the ceremony today, for those of you who are here and for those of you who are going to be coming in from out, uh, outside of here, we come as a, it's a joyous event. I said, you know, I'm going to tear up, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's the good kind of tears, right? Because you feel sincerity, aspiration, Right? There are many times in the ceremony where the ordinees say, yes, yes, I will. Yes, I want to do this. This is how I want to live. And so in a community, in a Zen community or any kind of community, in a family system, at work, you, we are affected always by one another. Right? So one person who says, you know what, I'm going to, you know, do this small thing that may be completely insignificant. We have no idea how even the smallest thing, right? Picking up the $20 bill and handing it to a person instead of pocketing it, right? Just a tiny thing. Like most of us, we like, yeah, that's what you just, just, just what you do, right? But this feeling of goodness, it's like, oh, you know, if I see somebody do that, it makes me feel better, right? We affect one another. And even more so when we, do it in a context of a formal ritual enactment of awakening, right? Which is what zazen is. It's a ritual enactment of awakening. Precepts for all our forms, right? When we bow, we're bringing to, you know, you can think of it in all kinds of ways. I'm bringing together my wisdom and my compassion, right? You can think of it in any way. Is it really, like, who cares, right? It's what come, what's manifest in your heart, as intention, as a wish for the universe, as a vow. Right? So when one person takes the precepts, uh, it, all of us are lifted up by that, by that act. Right? So I hope to see you there this afternoon. It starts at 3. Uh, it starts at 3. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to go with uh, Q&A today because I've already gone on long enough. But thank you all very much for your, uh, your curious effort for coming in here today and for supporting uh, our three ordinees because it really does support them to have people come and sit with them too. Thank you. <laughs>